Welcome to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 106 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. This week we're speaking with director Chris Dowling. Chris's new film, Run the Race, tells the inspiring story of a teen battling back from much more than just a life-changing injury. The film has a very special set of brothers behind the scenes, a duo whose sports background speaks for itself. This week's show is sponsored by Speakeasy Ideas. Now here's a message for homeschooling families from Dr. Thomas Kronowitter, president of Speakeasy Ideas. You know, freedom is never more than one generation away from being lost, depending largely on how free citizens educate their children. And while we have no shortage of problems in the world today, the future is brighter and more hopeful due to the good work to which you've dedicated yourselves, teaching your kids. Speakeasy Ideas wants to be your partner for homeschool civic education. That's why we've introduced a new online civics course titled The Political Science of the American Founding. This course will help your student become prepared for the rights and duties of being a citizen by learning the political science behind the great American experiment in constitutional self-government. The political science of the American founding is the result of my scholarly research and writing, combined with years of experience teaching at American colleges like Claremont McKenna College, Hillsdale College, and George Mason University. The materials included in this course have been selected, arranged, and packaged to supplement all kinds of curricula. You can easily modify these materials to be used for many learning levels, from young kids to high schoolers. To learn more about the new online civics class for homeschoolers, I invite you to go to speakeasyideas.com homeschool. That's speakeasyideas.com homeschool. And congratulations to you and your homeschooling kids. And thanks again for your good work and your interest in a sound civic education. What did Nirvana sing during the grunge era? All apologies? Today we get no apologies from the stars that shine so brightly in Hollywood. Think back a few weeks on the Covington Kids story. A gaggle of stars came out on Twitter, on social media, and said these kids were just the worst. They all assumed the fake news was real. Now most of those kids weren't even 18 yet, and that didn't matter. The stars knew better and they targeted them on social media. They used their huge social media followings to attack kids, and they were dead wrong. Of all the stars that did it, Kathy Griffin must have been the worst. Yet, have any of these stars apologized for getting this so very wrong? Jamie Lee Curtis did, quickly, too. But beyond her, anyone else? Well, it comes to mind when I was thinking about the Jesse Smollett case. It looks like the truth is finally starting to emerge. The gay black actor had claimed that he was attacked, called some horrible racial and homophobic slurs, and that the attackers said MAGA country as if they were Trump fans doling out their revenge for who knows what, but just kind of embracing their hate. Well, the actor's story keeps on collapsing, and it was pretty shoddy to begin with. Turns out two Nigerian brothers are now in custody, and they may be involved with the situation. We don't quite know if it was a strict, straight attack, if this was a planned situation. We don't know the whole story, but it's obvious what Smollett was saying isn't true. The actor's got a lot of explaining to do at this point. 
But of course, the usual suspects, namely Democrats in power, piled on both Trump and Trump supporters when the story first broke. It's if they had learned nothing from the Covington situation. And a lot of celebrities did the same, including director Ava DuVernay. So what happens next? Do all those stars erase those tweets? Do they offer up a full mea culpa? I'm so, so sorry we jumped to conclusions yet again. Well, likely nothing will happen. I doubt any tweets will be erased. There's no apologizing when the media won't hold you accountable. And a famous web-slinger once learned a hard truth. There's, with great power comes great responsibility. It's not just a spidey slab of wisdom. It's really true. And it applies to stars with huge social media followings who use them in the wrong way. Now, if they don't apologize, and soon, they're absolutely misusing those powers. I'm Patrick Corelci. And I'm Adriana Cortez. And we're the hosts of Red Pilled America, a new storytelling podcast. Red Pilled America is not another talk show covering the day's news. We are all about telling stories. Stories Hollywood doesn't want you to hear. Stories the media mocks. Stories about everyday Americans that the elites ignore. You can think of Red Pilled America as audio documentaries, and we promise only one thing, the truth. Visit the iHeartRadio app right now to listen to Red Pilled America. Here's the hit tweet of the week. Former NBC personality Megyn Kelly recently called out Disney's connection to foul-mouthed comic Sarah Silverman. In a way, she's right, and Disney has plenty of toxic people on his payroll, apparently, including a Beauty and the Beast producer who said some horrible things about those Covington kids. One of the tweets involved a wood chipper, and he was forced to apologize. But these are liberal toxic people, of course, so no one really complains. Still, Silverman used that Megyn Kelly attack to, guess what, savage Donald Trump. P.S. I'm more offended by a president who denies a real threat 97% of scientists beg him to take action on while creating a fake threat out of an at-risk brown people at the border. There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) Turns out Silverman is still clinging to that debunked 97% statistic. It's garbage. And I'm pretty sure those angel moms aren't worried about the color of an illegal immigrant's skin. They're just mourning the loss of their loved ones. But that doesn't seem to matter, Sarah Silverman. You're listening to my daddy's podcast. He still sleeps with the nightlight on. My hit tip of the week is The Promise. This 2017 film was an absolute dud at the box office. But you know what? Anyone who misses old school Hollywood epics really deserves to give this one a chance. The backstory here is the Armenian genocide, but the plot is involving a a complicated love triangle which dovetails directly into that tragedy. The cast here is really good, including Christian Bale, Oscar Isaac, and Charlotte Debon. And the visuals are really impressive, and they're occasionally bleak, too. There's lots of dark stuff going on, but also natural beauty, too. Now, I think before you see, maybe you want to Google Armenian Genocide, brush up on the history, and then watch the film, because I think you'll really get a better appreciation of it. But I think you'd also watch it without it, and then kind of rush to Google and find out more and more. Pretty amazing story. Pretty tragic, obviously. Is the promise as good as all those legendary Hollywood epics of yore? Absolutely not. Not even close. But it's good, it's absorbing, it's well acted. And for those who miss that style of filmmaking, it's going to make you feel a bit nostalgic while being entertained at the same time. The promise is available right now on Amazon Prime. 
You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. Now let's get to this week's HitCast interview. Chris Dowling started out as an actor in Hollywood, but quickly shifted to writing and directing. He previously made Where Hope Grows, an emotional tale of a Down syndrome man befriending a soul searching for the truth. Now Chris is behind a new film. It's called Run the Race. It's a faith kiss story produced by Tim and Robbie Tebow. Yeah, those Tebows. The film out February 22nd is the brothers' producing debut, and Chris details how they impacted the film behind the scenes, during filmmaking, and much more in the latest HitCast interview. Here's my chat with Chris Dowling. All right. Well, Chris, I understand you started out in Hollywood as an actor and kind of made the switch to being more of a writer-director. Uh, I, I was kind of curious... Was that evolution sort of sudden? Was did something kind of spark it, or was it maybe the just figuring out, hey, this is where you kind of need to be, want to be, and maybe where you were meant to be? Uh, you know, funny enough, it's more of a de-evolution because <laughs> I came out here and I wanted to write and um, and, okay. and ultimately direct. But um, you know, when you come out here, I think it's like the first thing everybody does is like, let's go get headshots and try to act. And so that just kind of happened quicker. Gotcha. Um, and then to be honest with you. Um, I was actually having some success and I was like, yeah, I don't really want to do this. And, um, and that's when I did, um, you know, my first little short film and then that kind of started happening the other film. So funny enough, it was actually, uh, yeah, I kind of stumbled backwards into that and then realized, nah, but like you said, maybe it's like, cause I was like, this isn't where I'm supposed to be. It's mm-hmm. just what it wasn't, you know, it, it's fun. I might do it again. Like if I make a movie and it's me and my buddies, but, um, it's not something I'm like, you'd want to pursue or anything. Gotcha. Well, looking at Run the Race, it, it's a really ambitious film. It's inspiring. There's a lot of stuff going on, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. And as, from your perspective, I think people can take away a lot from it on a lot of different levels. But if there is sort of a, a, a singular lesson or a singular takeaway, what, what do you want audiences to kind of walk away with? Um, I just I wanted to feel authentic. I wanted to um, feel like real people having real conversations. And I think that's what um, kind of... That's why that's what gives you that, that that affinity to the characters, and then again, like you said, it's layered. So it's like there's there's something for everyone in there, and we're all dealing with stuff. Especially, I'm a big fan of like like Stand by Me is probably my favorite movie of all time, and like I'm just a big fan of like coming of age movies, and um and this to me feels like that where mm-hmm. it's this this young guy and he's trying to figure out life, and I mean shoot, I'm 41 years old, I'm still trying to figure out life, but you know. <laughs> But, but at uh, 18, I was definitely in a weirder spot, and I think it's uh, it's it's fun to watch his journey and, and and watch it through the eyes of this brotherhood. We don't have a lot of good films, I think, from a drama standpoint about brothers, and I don't know why that is. But it feels like there's lots of other you know relationships that we'll see about. But brothers, I feel like we there's not just a there's not a lot of them, and so. Um, so this was kind of special for me. I mean, you know, I've got a brother who's like one of my best my best friend growing up, and um, and and so it really just it really hit home, you know. It's a good point, I, and I'm just like mentally cycling back. I can't remember the last movie that had a similar dynamic with the brothers, but it, it certainly needed. And it's funny because the next question I wanted to ask you was about the the authenticity of the small town feel that I think the movie really does capture well. Because I, I think if you get that wrong, it just jumps out at you, and I don't think the movie does at all. How do you kind of bring that to the screen? I mean, I know it's partly the screenplay, it's partly the visual presentation, but talk about connecting with that part of the American story because I think it's 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 nice to see on the screen in such a fashion. Yeah, well, thank you. And again, I think for any film I ever do, I mean, again, I, I'm probably going to 
murdered the word authenticity throughout the whole thing. But it's got I, I really want to feel authentic, you know, authentic. And I think, like you said, it just feels so stagey if suddenly you're you know if you can't get these locations and so that it works and um and then it's like oh yeah now i remember i'm watching a film and then even beyond that it's like oh i'm, I'm watching a low budget film because at that point it really starts to, there's you know i was having a conversation with another filmmaker and it's like if you have bad audio or you know locations that don't make sense it really gives it away and makes it feel like it's a low budget film because they just it takes you out of the movie and um and so to find this spot we found, um, which is awesome because you write, you write to it. So it's like we, we went and we looked, there's a city called Bessemer and, and I had no idea outside of Birmingham. And I mean, it's just been, it was apparently like in the fifties, it was like the Beverly Hills, uh, of Birmingham or something like that, where it was like, but it was this bustling like steel and train and they had all this commerce. And I mean, everything has just gone away. And, um, it's super. And I, in fact, they even told me, um, that's like, got, oh, this is true. I didn't like verify it or anything, but it was like one of the highest per capita, um, murder rates and, and of small towns, um, in America. Um, but it's because there's just nothing there right now. It's everything shuttered. Things have just been abandoned. And so when we pulled up and found this area, and I'm in this, the city of Bessemer was awesome. Like they couldn't have been better. The police were like, it got to the point where they just like, well, just drive around and tell us where you want to shoot. And so I was like literally just driving around and going, oh, there's a spot. Guys, let's go set up this. I talked to my DP. We'd look at it and we'd be like, okay, let's put this scene here. Or, hey, let's just, I mean, we've got this crazy scene, right? I mean, a crazy area we can use. Like, let's get the production value out of it. Let's do it. And even better that, which is really crazy, is um, the uh, the opening kind of football montage stuff that happened. Yep. We actually had Bessemer Academy, which – God bless them, um, was already going to be our, our backdrop and already going to be our set, our school's location setting. And, um, and they, had, they just happened to have a high school championship football game coming up the first day of our <laughs> shooting. And, uh, and I tell you what, I talked to coach and, um, they were amazing. And they let me put my actors in uniform on the sidelines. They were letting my actors run in. Like when their team scored a touchdown, there's 800 people in the crowd. This is a huge game. My actors were running out and jumping on these guys, like celebrating. Um, <laughs> I had, I had my head coach, Michael T. Williamson standing on the sideline, barking at, at the real players out there playing. And we were shooting all this. I mean, it was, it was probably super confusing and distracting I Had four camera crews going around. But like, so when you watch that, we actually, you know, shot three hours of a real, you know, small town high school championship football game. So, I mean, talk about feeling authentic. It was crazy. And then, oh, even so much so that their stud, uh, their stud quarterback who looked like my actor, um, I went up to coach. I was like, hey, man, I know I'm asking for a lot here, but, um, you know, our character wears jersey number two. Your guy wears 10. You think we could switch him, coach, so I could use the footage from the, And he was like, I'll ask him to change. <laughs> but that's, that's the kind of access that they gave us. And they were so amazing about it. And honestly, we couldn't have made the film look like we did without the help of those guys. It was a true, true blessing. Oh, I'd love to hear that. I, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk, to, talk about the Tebow brothers. Obviously, they're uh, executive producers here. What do they bring to a project like this? You know, Obviously, they're new to filmmaking. You're the veteran. But I, I imagine that Tim and Robbie they have something kind of special about them. They just seem like pretty, pretty great people. What, 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 what kind of difference do they make to a production like Run the Race? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, there's um, the no-brainer answer is, I mean, Tim Tebow, the Tebow name is a brand in and of itself. It's trusted. Um, it is, um, I mean, again, authentic. Like, that guy is who he says he is, which, I mean, you know, you know, in this day and age, there's that's few and far between, um, even in the, you know, conservative or faith space. Like, it's, you know, but he is who he says he is, and people trust him, people love him. And so, immediately, you know, that gives our film 
the face it needs mm-hmm. and, um, and the brand, um, awareness, but also again, the trust that, you know, these audiences know that they're going to see something that is going to be inspiring, um, and, and, you know, not going to be too cheesy. And, um, and so I think that is a huge part of that. And then the, the, the flip side is also Robbie who's getting his feet wet and who's got, you know, he's a creative guy and got great ideas and big dreams and hopes of doing a lot of movies was, you know, watching him kind of come in and, and, and work through the process of being a producer for the first time and add value and, um, and really, and just, I mean, dude, be a joy and he's become a good friend. And, um, and, and so I think it was, you know, the one, two punch are like, I mean, Tim being the face of our movie and, and Robbie being kind of some of the engine that was pushing it. Gotcha. And uh, when you have people who are new to filmmaking, I imagine there's a learning curve or I imagine there's, you know, you kind of get up to speed at the same time. I would think an outsider's perspective can be helpful for you as a filmmaker. Almost like you're, you're so in the moment that maybe having a different perspective helps things. Is, were there any sort of situations where that came into play at all, or that was a factor? Um, yeah, I think so. And I mean, I think um, you know, uh, any. I, I guess I can only speak for myself, but and my, you know, some of my friends that are directors in this kind of. But it's like, I think it should be a collaborative process, anyways. And it's like if somebody is sitting with me at video village, I don't care if you're the script supervisor or even a PA, I've had a PA tell me an idea and I was like, Oh cool. Yeah, we should use that. But it's like, I do think it should be cause I, I'm not, I don't have a monopoly on good ideas, obviously. So it's like, I, I welcome any conversation. And so especially like with some of the football stuff, like I grew up in Texas, I played all the sports, but, and I'm a football fan, but it's like, you know, Robbie had some insight and some stuff and that was very important to him. So it was like letting him have, you know, a lot of runway and figuring out some of that stuff was cool. And, but I, yeah, I, I think so. But again, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I understand, and I understand people that are so protective of their, you know, their movie they're making, but ultimately I don't know, man, I, I, I love, I love mining for good ideas. Now, again, as the process goes on and you've kind of caught your vision and stuff, like there can be too many cooks in the proverbial kitchen, which, um, you know, like in this situation, we had a lot of people that were making decisions on this movie. So that can kind of get to a, a point where you're like, Oh, it feels like, you know, we're in a studio here and we've got to run through you know, all these channels. And, and so that can be a frustrating process sometimes, but ultimately, you know, the product ended up being awesome. And, um, and yeah, you, you, I think you welcome collaboration. It's the best way to get it done. Run the Race has an alcoholic father figure. Your last film had a similar, uh, Where Hope Grows also had a similar kind of, generally speaking, kind of flawed figure. Are, are, are these kind of parents intriguing to you as a storyteller that, you know, that often the kids have to kind of make way in the world where maybe their sort of home life wasn't ideal, wasn't perfect? I mean, just as a storyteller, can you talk about that perspective? It, it fascinates me, and I, and I, I think it, it, it leads to pain, it leads to forgiveness, it leads to growth. And it leads to being stuck sometimes, too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, funny enough, um, it was the same alcoholic father figure. It was Chris Palaha okay. <laughs> playing both both characters, uh, which is hilarious. My dad just saw him on a, a Hallmark movie, and he was like, hey, call Palaha and tell him it's great to see him not drinking in one of his films. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I called him and told him that. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, you know what? I just As long as it's not played as a one-dimensional flat character, I mean, in Where Hope Grows – it was really important because it was a guy and who was, you know, he was getting ready to drink himself to death and he had given up on life. And the idea of that was like, what happens when that guy gets introduced to like the most basic childlike faith as an adult? So like that was the premise of setting him up there. And, and this one, I think as long as we realize and, it, and, it, and it's the audience gets to kind of catch up, I think, with it is like when you know, the mom dies, like it doesn't just affect our boys. And suddenly 
dad becomes a bad guy, you know, obviously he has issues, but I think you have to, there's a little bit that you start kind of feel, I mean, you're going to root for him, but ultimately like you have to feel for him too. Like this guy lost his wife too. And he did not make the right choice. Um, you know, as he has kind of fallen away from the kids and, and, you know, is drinking and, and doing whatever. But ultimately, um, I think as long as they're not one dimensional characters, um, I think there's something interesting about, you know, these guys that when they, you know, when they fall away and it's, it's prevalent, man. I mean, it's when, when, when you're giving up on stuff, you are doing, you know, stuff like just filling your time with drinking or, you know, drugs oftentimes. And I mean, it's not only that, but also, you know, I think that's definitely a sign of things to happen. And it's something you can obviously play on, um, film that, you know, a lot of people have had situations like that. My grandfather was an alcoholic. Um, and I've heard stories from my dad about what, you know, what he went through as a kid. And I think that all that stuff plays in the back of your head when you're writing these characters. Yeah. You, you're watching this particular, uh, figure. And then he says, you know, I've spent two Christmases without my wife. And I, it was a, it's a really beautiful line because it just, it kind of puts a whole new spin on things and a whole new perspective on things. I, I want to uh, touch briefly on uh, where hope grows. You worked with, uh, David DeSanctis, who is a, uh, he has down syndrome. And I, you know, there's been so much talk about, Hollywood and, and sort of being more open to different roles and different people and maybe even disabled actors. Uh, what do you think you learned from that experience working with him? It sounds like it was a great one, but what would you tell other directors who, who maybe haven't worked with a, a non-traditional actor in a sense? Um, I mean, honestly, the biggest lesson was, and, and by the way, David now has become, I mean, I'm a very, very close friend. I, I love that guy. Um, and um, but ultimately, I, I think it is you can't be afraid or question or you can't doubt. Like, let them um, don't put them in a box and go just because somebody has Down syndrome, they won't be able to do this, especially if you don't have never met anyone with Down syndrome. Because like the, even along the way with David, David was shocking me with the stuff he was doing and performances and stuff. And I'm like I said, I'm still friends with him very close. And he still says he's going to do something. And I go, ah, David, I don't know if you should do that or you, I don't think you're going to be able to do that one. And then he does it. And I, and, I, and I tell him, I go, why do I keep still doubting you? Like, I don't get it. And so I think um, – but I think it's about embracing that. I mean, like, I think you have to, um, you have to go and, and reach and find people that that are authentic to the to the part, and they can do it. And you know, I, and treat that. That was my biggest thing. Is like, when I was going to do Where Hope Grows, I was getting ready to go out there. I didn't know anybody with Down syndrome, but I had written this character, and I was about to go direct David for the first time. And you know, my wife was like, "Oh, well, you know, you really need to be researching and, and studying and doing the stuff." And she's right in a lot of ways. But ultimately, I was like, "The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go out there. I'm going to treat him like a dude. And then if that doesn't work, Plan B is I'm going to go, um, you know, talk to Down syndrome Louisville and really get get a lot of help." But I went out there and I just started treating him like a dude. And next thing you know, he's treating me like a dude, and we're just you know, two fellows making a movie together and it became so cool. And we trusted each other so much. And this amazing friendship came from all that. But, and, and his performance was insane. Like he's never acted before and he crushed it. And it was, it was so, I don't know, man, it was, it was eye opening. And it's, and it's actually propelled me in a way that before that I had no special needs, um, you know, um, uh, uh, charities or that wasn't a thing that was really registering to me. But after that, now, I'm involved with special needs organizations at my church. I'm in the, you know, special needs ministry. Like it really has um, affected my life in that manner, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another, obviously, element of your film is faith and, and how it works with the story, works with the characters. When you're making a faith-based movie 
or even even pushing that label aside, what is the sort of the, the key thing you want to do and the key thing you want to avoid? Because it's obviously you don't want to preach, but it's it's an essential element here. Talk about sort of that 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 balance as as a filmmaker. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, the faith based faith based isn't really a genre per se as much as it is a marketing um box. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's even in this, even in the different films that deal with faith, I mean, you could really go across the board to like broader things like the blind side where there's like Christian worldviews inside of a, a secular, otherwise secular film to the Kendrick brothers films that are, you know, very message driven and, and made for the church audience almost specifically and exclusively. And then there's this huge space in between. And, um, and, and so it's, so there's, you got to know your audience. So you, to me, you want to do things that don't offend your audience necessarily, but at the same time, I, I personally don't want to um, pander to my audience or, um, you know, not give them enough credit. And, and so, um, so for me, for the films I want to make, I like faith to be a layer in there amongst other layers, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so that's, that's just for me specifically, that's what I like. There's a time and place for all the other kinds too. And those guys do great jobs with them and, 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 and hit their markets and they know they know their you know audience. But ultimately, for me personally, there is, you know, I would like to expand more out of that. And I've got some projects I'm working on now that are not specifically would not qualify as the quote unquote faith based market. They wouldn't. Mm -hmm. It's not stuff, but ultimately have faith elements in them. So I, I'm liking to I, I personally want to push more into that space of like the secular, like, or whatever, just a movie. Like, it's just, that's my thing. It's like, it's just a good movie that deals with faith. Like, I mean, that's what I want. I don't want people to say, that's a good faith based movie. Like, is a good movie and there's faith in it. Like that's, I'd much rather hear that. You know what I mean? Yep. When, when you're working in a project like this, like a very good cast, do I imagine people maybe more, more faithful, others maybe are more secular in their, in their, you know, I guess their personal lives. Does that sort of help in a way to kind of have a range of experiences on the set in the crew when you're kind of telling the story where maybe you can get different kinds of feedback or what's that like if it isn't I, I mean I'm assuming there's not a unanimity of, of, of sort of approach in a sense yeah I mean I I love I love that having different um, ideas and different beliefs in 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 the in everything in the character I mean, in the actors but also in the crew I uh, anything I write, I send over to my best friend and, um, and he's agnostic and, um, and I want my, my screenplays that are dealing with faith, but to still pass muster with him. Mm -hmm. He might not believe in the ultimate, you know, message per se, but ultimately he can read it and go, Oh, cool. And I'll find stuff that is attractive to him because, you know, again, like the faith market is very exclusive and you kind of have a lot of, in a lot of ways you already have to be on the team to enjoy a lot of the movies, but I, I want to be inclusive so I can, you know, reach people like my best friend who's like, cool, man. I, he's like, and he loves the movies. He shot Where Hope Grows with me. He was a, he's a DP and now he's a, a very successful director. But like, you know, it's like, so I need his input because I want to know what sparks in him. And, you know, like he told me, he's like a lot of these faith movies, he's like, they, you know, it's, um, the opening is a, a guy who's walked away from his faith or, you know, quote unquote backslid or whatever the case may be. He's like, and then he gets a sermon. And then the third act is he goes back to it. He's like, well, he's like, if I've never had faith to begin with, so I can never fall away from it. He's like, I automatically don't associate with that character. I'm going to have a tough time wanting to even get to that second act. And it makes sense. Like, so it's like leaving some of it ambiguous, like we did in like where hope grows, where it's like, 
you don't know his faith going into this. Did he have faith? Did he walk away from the faith? And I and I love giving the audience credit to that because then the audience can make their own call on where where the starting point is, and then they can go on that journey. And then without me having you know without exposition and me having to dictate this is where you're at, they get to make it personal. And mm-hmm. I think that goes a lot of, a long way. Gotcha. I imagine as a director, every time you do a project, you're learning, you're growing, you're kind of accepting different things and getting feedback. When, when you're shooting in a, in a small American town and you're working with a really gifted cast like you have here, is there any sort of specific uh, maybe takeaways or lessons from, from making Run the Race that you can kind of point to and say, hey, I, I, think, I think this is how I grew or this is a, a great tip from an actor or this was something that really touched me about the local people here that I'm going to kind of take away from this movie? Um, yeah, I mean, it's sim- it's similar because when we shot like Where Hope Grows was also in like Louisville, and we had some small town action that was really helpful and stuff. But I think like anything in every movie, um, when you're the director and it's you know quote unquote your set, um, I think a lot of it is is also about managing um, personalities and people, and um, and I think that is always a big growth space too is um, trying to just figure out how to navigate through all that. So I feel like. Um, you know, I feel like I definitely learned some places in there and, um, and I got to shoot with the new DP who has become a super close friend of mine, Chris Kimlin, who's shot amazing stuff before. And I'll use again. So like figuring out a working process with him where suddenly we were on the same page, the same way that me and my old DP best friend were, where I can just, it's like shorthand. Mm-hmm. Like that is, that is something that had to happen quickly and it did. So it's like learning the processes of, of that for sure. And then, and then, and even that, Chris has a different shooting style than my, and it was so, it was trusting and getting on board with him and, you know, and making a, a beautiful movie. Gotcha. Before I let you go, any future projects that are either in development, sort of uh, in, in your head, maybe even closer to fruition that you can kind of talk about and maybe kind of tease a bit? Um, there's a lot, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, that, there is some stuff, but I actually don't know if I'm supposed to say things okay. or not. Uh, to be honest trouble. with you, but but there's some. There's I've got a um, a uh, a pretty miraculous movie about um, about some uh, about a, a orphanage that um, basically wins one of the largest fishing tournaments in the world and beats out 900 of the top, literally the top fishermen in the world um, to to raise money to save the orphanage, which is a true story um, that I, that is about to start shooting and. Mm. Um, and there's, uh, you know, there's some fun things. There's a, I've got a horror film. We've got a docu-series. We, um, we've got another, I've got another docu-series that will soon be coming out and that, um, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I should really find out what I'm supposed to talk, <laughs> talk about before I start spouting off. But there's a lot, there's a lot that's happening right now. It's a very exciting time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, I just feel really, I'm really, really grateful. Well, suffice to say you're, you're busy and uh, will continue to be busy for the foreseeable future. But, uh, well, yes. uh, thank you, Chris, for joining the HitCast. Please make a date to see Run the Race, opening February 22nd. All the best to you on the film and your future projects, and we'll hear about more very soon. Thank you, Christian. Appreciate it, buddy. All right. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. 
I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. The Medicare annual election period deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who started their search for coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online, so he started at MyHealthPolicy.com. I took my time and found the coverage I was looking for, and done. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com and done. Switched to a better plan. And Michael. I met with a local licensed insurance agent face-to-face and done. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to compare top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.